recently when we produced a DVD addressing the issue of transgenderism. Mr. Smith went through the topic carefully and, and quite thoroughly. And perhaps you may wonder, why make such a big deal about this? Well, the issue of sex and gender in our modern culture is a big deal, and there's a great deal of confusion. So when I was handed a book by Dr. Leonard Sachs titled Why Gender Matters Recently, it caught my attention. Um, you might have heard of Leonard Sachs. He wrote a number of books about family matters in recent years. For example, he wrote one titled Boys Adrift. It's subtitled The Five Factors Driving the Growing Epidemic of Unmotivated Boys and Underachieving Young Men. And, and he wrote a companion to this book a couple of years later focusing on challenges that girls face. He's a, a clinical uh, psychologist, I believe. And, and so he talked about his experiences in, in counseling, working with young people. And the companion book for girls was titled Girls on the Edge, The Four Factors Driving new, the New Crisis for Girls, Sexual Identity, the Cyberbubble, Obsessions, and Environmental Toxins. Uh, both excellent books to learn more about the subject. But Why Gender Matters by Dr. Sachs was originally written in 2005, and then he updated it a few years ago in 2017, and it was not necessarily a hit with everyone. And I, I find it enlightening to read the reviews of a book in which I'm interested sometimes, and uh, here's one review of this book, Why Gender Matters. He says, and this is an academic, uh, this is a doctor of, I think, of, of, of psychology, he says, the review says, I've never read an academic book more offensive, problematic, inaccurate, queerphobic, transphobic, sexist, hateful, opinionated. I'm still in shock. He says, the reviewer goes on to say, the author neglects the discussions of race, class, ableism, etc. Intersectionality, positional matters, he, he uh, neglects. Why Gender Matters, the review goes on, relies on dated, disproven notions of essentialism. This book completely rejects all of the emerging science on the subject. The book does not allow for social constructionism at all and ignores the role of the historical unconscious. Don't read this book. Please don't. This book could only further harm people, especially those who more directly resist society's expectation for men and women. Those both are in quotes, men, quotes, and women, quotes. Why Gender Matters was so bad and so offensive, I emailed Amazon to express my thoughts and to request a refund. They granted it even though it was high, slightly past the refund window for Kindle eBooks. I also suggested they shouldn't sell this, books, this book as it promotes discrimination. Read Cordelia Fine's Delusion of Gender, How Our Mind, Society, and Neurosexism create, di create Difference to Actually Learn About Why Gender Matters and About Its Power on Society. Now, perhaps it's my contrary nature, but after reading that review, I definitely knew that this book was for me, and it was worth reading. And Dr. Sachs makes powerful and, and frankly, common-sense arguments about why gender matters. And so I say common sense because, because most of us know that we're not really the same as male and female. 
Uh, I'd like to do a little experiment to, to prove this point just so we have a, a common starting place. But I, I, need, I need some help. So I need all the kids in the audience at this point, all the kids in the audience and in the, in the cafeteria as well, you can join in. And I need you to listen up for a moment, okay? So listen carefully now. If you are a girl, stand up and wave, okay? All girls, stand up and wave. Any, any girls? Go ahead. Don't, don't be shy. Thank you. Okay. Girls, stand up and wave. Okay. A little, thank you. Okay. Now, now, if you are a boy, okay, this is trick, this is the tricky part. If you are a boy, stand up now and wave. A little boy, stand up now and wave. Can we, can we have that? So, okay. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. That's good. We got, okay, very good. So, uh, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Now, because of what you just saw, and that seemed to work pretty well, despite rumors to the contrary, we generally know if we're a boy or a girl. Even if we're only four or five or six or seven, we generally know this. We understand this. And even kids know this. But Dr. Sachs, in his book, guides us step-by-step step through an argument of why those differences matter. And, and he addresses fundamental biological differences in how men and women smell and see and hear and why that matters in terms of how we function in daily life. And he takes a look at the research that shows the differences in how males and females typically approach risk, um, aggression, classroom learning, sex, drugs, alcohol, social media, uh, video games, and, and more in, in his book. So despite the, the blurred picture that our, cultural, our culture paints, despite the noise and the messaging and the pressure to believe otherwise, gender does matter, according to Dr. Sachs. And he makes a very good case. But he's wrong, or at least incomplete. That's right. Why does gender matter? Now, let's make it more personal. Let's make it more personal. Why does gender matter to you? Because here's the issue. You have reasons. You have reasons why gender matters to you. For example, now you may be wrong or at least incomplete, but I have reasons why genders to matter, gender matters to me as well. But they also may be wrong or incomplete. For example, I may think that gender matters because boys should protect girls and not the other way around. And that's why I may think that gender matters. Or perhaps you think gender matters because a girl, girl should follow the guy when it comes to taking the guy taking the lead in dancing. But is that all there is to it? And just maybe, maybe you think that gender actually doesn't matter. I mean, maybe you say it does, but in reality, maybe in reality you don't actually think it does. For example, you may think that it doesn't matter who takes the lead in the spiritual life of the family, that gender doesn't really matter. Maybe it could be the wife or it could be the husband. Or you may think that gender doesn't really matter when it comes to who leads in our community. Or you may think that gender doesn't matter when it comes to work, to what, who does what kind of work as a career around the home. You know, it's not the 1950s anymore, so what does it matter? So you may think that gender really doesn't matter in that regard. You may think, for example, 
that having an activity that's just for men, like a men's training camp like we've had, it's a horrible thing because you really think that gender doesn't matter. And so having an activity that's exclusive and is totally inappropriate. So you may think that although you may say it matters, you may in certain ways think, you know, it really doesn't matter. And I think this is out of whack or that's out of whack. Or you may think that gender only matters in marriage, but for those that are not married, it's really none of God's business to tell you what to do in terms of gender. Now, back to the question then. Does gender matter to you? How does it matter and why does it matter? See, the reality is there is a bigger and a better question that we need to ask if we're going to get this right. And there's someone else who has a say in this matter besides you and and me. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1, and let's read verse 26. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And we read verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. This is the missing piece in this topic. You see, if we argue that gender only matters from a standpoint of, say, body size or, or let's say, hearing ability or smelling ability, these biological factors, or even psychological makeup or even emotional tendencies. We're making the same mistake that others make. And despite the, the loud voices and the cultural push saying that gender doesn't matter, there, there are many who say it does but they describe it in a very, I'll say, utilitarian way. They describe it as a result of an evolutionary process, for example. For example, they they acknowledge that men have, on the whole, greater body strength, only they say that this this is not as important in the workplace today as it was once, so therefore that that difference is not as important as it may have been at one time, so therefore everything's changed in terms of gender matters, because they're only looking at the, at the biology, you see, in a very utilitarian way. Now, I listened to a podcast the other day, two very famous uh, current podcasters. I, I don't want to advertise their names here, but they're very popular, particularly for the younger crowd like me. And, and those of us... I'll say that those of us in the younger crowd like me, um, we, we, we listen to these guys. And one of them was arguing against homosexual marriage, which I would agree with. And, and so, um, for to me, and, and listening to this podcast along with other younger people like me, um, the most frustrating thing was that he was unwilling to, to say that this is wrong by God's command. And the one gentleman spent the better part of an hour going around in circles and trying to argue against homosexual marriage using logic and human reasoning, really just like Dr. Sachs. And they went round and round and round and around, and I don't think either one changed their position by the end of the hour. See, the missing piece of understanding is here in the Bible. God is the one who created us as male and female. So I would dare say that gender matters to him. 
So just maybe it's a little bit presumptuous to be drawing conclusions about why gender matters without reading what he has to say on the subject. And I hope you would agree. So instead of a, of a title of Why Gender Matters, which I began with as I was thinking about this, it would seem a better title for my sermon would be Why Gender Matters to God. And so let's approach it that way and over the course of the sermon analyze why gender matters to God. And hold on to your hats because I'm going to give you ten ways in which gender matters to God. And by the way, there will be a test at the end. Uh, so hold on to your hats. Number one, number one, gender matters to God because he designed us this way from the beginning. Seems pretty simplistic, I know, but we don't have to go very far here in our book to read Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. And we see verse 7, the Lord God formed man. As he reiterates what was said earlier, he says, verse 7, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Not evolved into a living being with certain characteristics that make him different from a woman or what have you. No, he, God made man as man is made, as man as man is, with all of his biology, all of his parts and the way he's built. God did that. He made man as a man. And, and we don't go too far in the same chapter to read in verse 22, then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Yes, Woman was of the same stuff as man, but she was created, we read verse 21, verse 21 and 22, verse 22, it said, the Lord God had taken from the man this rib, and he made into a woman. What a miracle this is. You think about our internal organs, you think about our reproductive systems, how they work, our skin, our hearing, and our seeing, with, with built-in differences that are replicated time and time again in the next generation of males and the next generation of females. Again and again and again and again through history with those unique differences. Dr. Saxon had in his book, Why Gender Matters, he had... Uh, at the beginning of the book, uh, uh, quite a lengthy, lengthy discussion of things like hearing, smelling, and, and, and seeing, and how tastes differ and sight differs and, and so on. And uh, he had a, a, a case in which a couple came to his, his office. They were arguing. He had to try to calm them down. They were arguing about something that the, the, the wife smelled in the house. It was driving her crazy. And the man, so she would say, it's I can't believe he can't smell it. It's so strong. I can't, I can't, I can't believe he can't smell this. And the, the, the husband was like, I, I don't know. I got nothing. Dude. I don't smell anything. She's crazy. And so they were having this fight back and forth. And so what, as he talked with them and went back and forth, then began to re- he re- reveal some of the statistics and some of the research, and that is that the, the way, and I Wish I could explain it better, but I'll try to do it briefly. That apparently, generally speaking, women have a greater a greater sense of smell than men. Okay, I mean, statistically speaking, but it, but it's not just a greater sense of smell. What happens in the in in the female smelling system, as I'll call it in layman terms, is that every time a particular smell is experienced, it becomes more acute the next time. 
Whereas in man, every time he smells something, it stays the same, okay? It's no more, no less. What had happened in this case as he delved into it, what had happened is apparently they'd gone on vacation, and when they came back, she was that's when she said, this smell is horrific. And again, he said, I got nothing. I didn't I don't smell anything. Well, he finally agreed, because the, this is the coaching they received from Dr. Sachs, to go ahead and have somebody come in and look and look around. Well, two rats had died in their, in their ductwork, in a puddle of, 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 uh, of water in the ductwork somewhere, and apparently had been rotting in there for some time. And the, and the smell, particularly when they came back from, from vacation, became quite acute to the woman. But as he explained, it, it, for her, literally every time, and it's by multiples of thousands of, uh, of, of percentage points, every time a smell, the way a, a woman's uh, smelling system works, literally it becomes more sensitized to a particular smell. Now, I don't know if it's true or not because I'm not a woman, so I can't tell you. Ladies will have to tell me if that happens to you or if you've been, ever thought about it or aware of it. But this is the way that the study, the study goes. And he used, he just explained that this is an example of literally a biological difference that can be noted, researched, and, and so on. And he explained the same in terms of hearing, for example. So, for example, with little boys in a classroom, Little boys in a classroom typically, or little, versus little girls. Little girls typically have a more acute, it's by percentage points, but generally speaking, a more acute sense of hearing, especially as a child. So when a teacher speaks loudly to them, it has a, a bigger impact than for a little boy who's like, what? You know, a teacher shouts at them like, yeah, you know, it's like it doesn't have the same impact. And he was talking about how, typically speaking, what happens is little boys, they get pushed to the back of the room because they'd rather sit back in the back of the room and, you know, shoot spitballs or something. And so what happens is the teacher typically is actually even less heard by little boys in terms of the hearing system than little girls who tend to actually sit to the front of the class anyway. Anyway, he goes through these vast studies that, that show how differences in biologies actually reveal themselves in boys and girls and men and women. Now, that's not rocket science for, for us. I don't think I'd have to argue that to anybody here because we read from the book. And the book says he created female and he created the male. He created us and he created us differently. So, number one, gender matters to God because he's the one who designed us this way from the beginning. Simple, but I think it's worth stating. Number two, Number two, truth number two. According to God, gender matters in terms of the composition of marriage. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, according to God, the fundamental human relationship established by God is between one of each of the sexes, a male and a female, or one of each of the genders, I am going to use those two words interchangeably today without apology. So according to God, gender matters for marriage. And amazingly, God made the relationship between these two people, one of each sex or gender, to be physically compatible with the physical characteristics designed to physically fit together as an intimate and enjoyable way to cement the emotional bond in marriage and to produce, ingeniously produce 
reproduce himself or herself in the next generation. Now, that leads to a a sub-point. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1, we read how in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1, I don't mean to insult your intelligence here, but I do think we have to state the, the plain facts. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from God. So it was the woman, it was the female that conceived and bore the child, not the other way around. And amazingly, from billions and billions of people and billions of couples, it's been that way since that time. Obvious, but I think it's important that we state the obvious here. We, we haven't had where one generation or one part of the world, because of maybe environmental impact, and there's more sun or more cold, it's the men who give birth. No, no, it's always amazingly been the women who give birth. Now, that's part, that's part of the fact that according to God and God's design, gender matters in terms of the composition of marriage and even the fruit of marriage, the fruit of, 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 the, of the womb. So when marriage is done, then any other way, man with man or woman with woman, it is not as God intended and it does not fulfill the design of God. Leviticus chapter 20, Leviticus chapter 20. And we read here, verse 13, said, If a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination, and they shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. So, let's say, sexuality between a man and a man in this intimate relationship, and which uh, sexuality is to be between a man and a woman, as I began with, this is not to be. Now, we, we know there's, there's more to this point because we, unlike Adam and Eve, for example, um, we have the writings of Paul in Ephesians 5, for example, where we read that this marriage relationship also pictures the relationship between Christ and his church. And, of course, Adam and Eve did have God to instruct them, but they didn't listen anyway. Um, so we have the benefit of both God's instructions and, and Paul's additional comments. But to the point, according to God, then, gender matters for marriage. Number three, number three, according to God, gender matters in terms of the greater weight of leadership in marriage, and in society. Now, this is an explosive one. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. We read here in verse 15 that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. This is Genesis 2 and verse 15, to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. So we find right at the very beginning of the family of man that God instructed the man to obey him in this regard. He expected him then when he, uh, when he brought him his, his wife, he expected him to take the lead in, 
in, in, uh, in the family relationship, in the family matters, in, in obedience to God. So verse 18, And the Lord God, you see at this point, said, It is not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper comparable to him. So a helper that would assist, that would support, that co-op, would cooperate with him, but he commanded, we see, if we just look at the words here, he commanded the man within that relationship to have, to have the responsibility first and foremost. Woman was to be a helper to him, not the other way around. And that's simply the way that it's written. You know, the beginning of patriarchy was not an evolutionary phenomena, but a God-ordained directive. He was to establish a new family with his wife at his side. Verse 24, we read again. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. This is, you might say, patriarchal centered here. The man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. When a man abdicates in that role, there will be negative consequences. Genesis chapter 3, we read about this in verse 17. To Adam, he said in verse 17 of chapter 3, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I have commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, and it goes on from there. So he puts the obligation, he puts a responsibility, he puts an accountability on Adam that is that is is born by him and secondarily to his wife. That's the reality of it. You know, we read other scriptures, Proverbs chapter 12, for example. Proverbs chapter 12. And there are many dozens, but I'll just give you a couple examples. There are other examples of how God, how gender matters in terms of the greater weight of leadership in marriage and in society. Proverbs chapter 12. And verse 4, for example. Now, you might, you might say, well, this is a little bit off the, off the beaten track here, but Proverbs chapter 12, just as an example of, of many of the little bits and pieces that we see throughout the Bible, verse 4, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who causes shame is like rottenness in his bones. In other words, he says, look, that if a, a wife is wise and honorable, she actually does, she does great to, to him. She helps him. She, she helps him to, to be a better man. And so it's placed with the man as the one who is in the responsible position with obligation, but the the woman can be a great help to him. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 18. See, wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. And then children, obey your parents in all things. But here it's very clear that there's a responsibility that a man has to, to take the lead and his wife to support and to uh, respond to his leadership. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we read verse 3. 
I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And he goes on from there. And that theme is is repeated in verses 8 and 9 and 12. And what about in our community? Let's go to Isaiah chapter 3. Isaiah chapter 3. Isaiah chapter 3 and verse 12, and he's, he's condemning Israel for how far they've moved from following God. And he says, as for my people, verse 12, children are their oppressors and women rule over them. O my people, those who lead you cause you to err and destroy, destroy the way of your path. Now you can try to twist this in any sort of way because it's an amazingly politically incorrect statement that God inspired to be in the Bible. And, uh, of course, the the incorrectness didn't stop us from publishing Mr. Weston's uh, cover article just literally one year ago, and women rule over them. But it is politically incorrect to say that this is not a good thing, because the drumbeat in society is... Great, we need more women ruling over us, over the world. I was just reading uh, three articles from the Harvard Business Review on this topic. All three of them said, you know, if only women were in more leadership roles, this world would be a better place. And they went and had a number of studies of this and that and so on and so forth. Of course, then read read one uh, comment on it said this is actually by a woman saying that this is all upside down and giving the other side of the story. But but the drumbeat is that, you know what, if only our world were ruled over by women to a greater degree, everything would be better. That's what we have on a, on a, a regular basis. You know, our society rails against biblical understanding of man's responsibility to lead. It's called toxic Patriarchy, for example. Here's a definition, by the way, of patriarchy. This is the definition you'll find if you look, generally speaking, something like this. Patriarchy, or men in leadership roles, patriarchy perpetuates oppressive and limiting gender roles, the gender binary, transphobia, and sexism, sexual assault, the political and economic subordination of women, and so much more. And it is of the utmost importance that we prioritize dismantling the patriarchy in our intimate lives as well as in a larger systemic sphere. That's the typical of what you'll hear about, let's say, men in leadership roles. But the Bible says something different. According to God, not according to man, but according to God, this is the way it's supposed to be. Yet... That's not what we hear. According to God, that male leadership should be reflected in the family, in our civil society, and, yes, even within the church. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 16, for example, we see a special obligation placed upon the males, where we read, three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord, your God in the place which he chooses. And you know the scripture. And you can say, well, that's just a matter of biology because women would be home perhaps giving birth. Okay, you can say whatever you want, but that's the command that God has in the Scriptures. That's what God says. 
you know, in our modern times, we could say, well, it's not really applicable, not if gender doesn't matter. And, and you can say, well, you know, back in days gone by, it was uh, the men had greater body strength, and, and so, you know, it was evolved so they could take a greater leadership role, and, and that's what it's all about. Again, the, the, the reality is what we read in the Scriptures is very plain. It, see, you know, what you find as you read more and more about, I'll say, from the perspective of, of rabid feminists or those who argue for transvestitism, sometimes they are at odds themselves, but what they do is try to minimize differences. And they, they maintain that equality is about a genderless world. And along comes someone like, with a little bit of common sense, like, for example, uh, Dr. Sachs, who's in touch with reality and says, excuse me, gender does matter because there are differences between one gender and another. And, and his common sense sends rabid feminists into apoplectic shock, as I read about in the review. But what I'm saying is that if we just get on Dr. Sachs's bus, for example, you know, if we just get on his, you might say, his, his bandwagon with that common sense acknowledgement of differences, we're still not on God's bus. Because what the scriptures teach us in regard to the different genders is not just a matter of acknowledging biological differences. It's acknowledging God's design for why those differences exist in the first place and how we should function according to God's guidance. Here's an example of how we try to function in the real world according to God's instruction. This is one of the questions that comes into our personnel correspondence department on a regular basis concerning the ordination of women into positions of leadership in the church. And here's, here's part of our, our general response as written by Wyatt Seselka in, in a commentary that was published uh, six or seven years ago in 2015. And, and here's what he wrote. And this is what's used to explain to people what, how we approach the issue of uh, women uh, versus men in leadership roles within the church. He says, he writes, Ordination of women in the Anglican and Episcopalian churches has become increasingly common over the last few decades. The Anglican church has been ordaining women since the 1970s. And in 2006, the U.S.-based Episcopalian church appointed a woman as their 26th presiding bishop. So why are so many supposed Christian denominations ordaining women? Again, the answer is quite simple. They are rejecting scripture, and as Jeremiah prophesied, they are teaching lies. Jeremiah 23, verses 1 through 26, condemns the shepherds or priests and ministers of false churches who destroy and scatter the sheep who prophesy lies, and who lead the people astray. God loves and gives high regard to women. But Scripture is also quite clear that women are not to be ordained as elders, ministers, or preachers with spiritual authority in the church. No matter how much people want to argue against God otherwise, Scripture commands that if a married woman wants to learn something spiritual, she should first ask her own husband at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church, 1 Corinthians 13, 14, verse 34 and 35. In other words, if married woman is to be under the spiritual authority of her husband, the wife is to be submissive to the husband, not to be in spiritual authority over him. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. 
Furthermore, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, again instructs that a woman is not to teach or have authority over a man, but is to be, quote, be in silence. When Scripture gives instructions regarding ordination to the ministry, those instructions are for men, not for women. 1 Timothy 3, verses 2 through 5, records that, quote, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, one who rules his own house well, one who rules his own house, not one who rules her own house. And Titus instructs that elders are appointed in every city. These elders are senior men. They are to be blameless men and to be the husband of one wife, which coincidentally completely contradicts the Catholic false doctrine of an unmarried celibate priesthood. Oppressive and limiting gender, gender roles. Some of that you may think, wow, silence, all these words. But the point is, is that men are pushed into the into the role of taking leadership within within the church, and you know what the reality is that right now, if you look at the statistics, it is generally speaking the it, it is the majority within churches the majority of those involved in churches, except even in or, in organizations that have men in leadership roles, it's the majority involved in in church church going church leadership are women. Just look up the statistics one time. We are, in our society today, religion has been feminized. And that's another topic, but the feminization of the nominal, of nominal Christianity is, is a big topic. And, it, and it's for real. Now, what the scriptures tell us is no, men are supposed to step up to the plate in that regard. Is that oppressive and is that limiting? Not according to God. And, and some of the details as to how that happens and why, that's something that bears more discussion. But that is the reality. As I I'll reiterate point number three again, and that is simply this. According to God, gender matters in terms of the greater weight of leadership in marriage, in society, and within the church. Number four. Number four. According to God, gender matters in differentiating man from woman Boy from girl. This may sound a little bit repetitive, but there's a, there's a difference. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 22. Deuteronomy 22 and verse 5. A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. And then we go over to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Another verse that's inspired by God to guide us. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we read verse 14. Breaking into the whole section here, but I just want to highlight verses 14 and 15. Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. In other words, a man should not affect the habits, the gestures, the mannerisms or attire of a woman, and vice versa. It's simple. But that simple instruction from the mind of God is is anchored in a timeless principle. And this is a principle that reinforces a deeper truth. The value of differentiating between male and female. Now, if you want to pick a fight in our world today, and I hope that's not with anybody here, but if you want to pick a fight with somebody in the world today, just say that. That it's important, it's a value to differentiate 
between a boy and a girl, a man and a woman. I want to say that, I want you to, I want to, I want you to think about that. I want you to know, understand exactly what I'm saying because according to God, differentiating between male and female is a true value. But in our world, the knee-jerk response when a girl gets involved in something that is stereotypical for guys, the response is applauded. You go girl, yeah, yeah. That's the response that is typical. Just a couple weeks ago, I was, uh, I was uh, on my way to work in the morning, and, and I heard an interview on the local radio station, WBT, I think it is, and uh, Bo Thompson was interviewing a young, a young high school girl. And her claim to fame was that she was the only girl in the automotive club at a local high school. And Bo Thompson was effusive. That's so great that you're involved in this group that's typically an interest for guys. And, and you may say, what, why are you making such a big deal about this? But, you know, the irony is he wasn't interviewing the other 36 guys. He was interviewing her. Why was he interviewing her? Because our mindset today is a knee-jerk, reinforcing, effusive praise of somebody who gender-bends stereotypes. That's the way our society is today. And if you, and if you, if you actually seem to not think that's a great idea, you're the bad guy. You're the pigeonholer. You're the one who's just stereotyping. Because our society today is all about, is applauding the blending. So you're the sexist if you actually want to reinforce or hold up of the value of the differentiation between Boys and girls, and men and women. You know, people can argue till the cows come home about whether gender is created by a child's environment or not. In other words, you know, the argument goes, of course boys and girls different are different. You know, they're stereotyped that way because, because parents give little boys Little, give little boys cars and trucks, and they give little girls baby dolls. So, of course, this is all stereotyped in them. You know what's interesting about Dr. Sachs's book is that he shows that even when, for example, girls, there are, sometimes you have a girl that's attracted to a, a little truck or a little car, car, but the way they play with them is different than the boys. The boys take them apart, smash them into each other, what have you. The girls typically, and he walked through some, some examples, the girls will line them up, they'll have them attend a party together with the other cars, and they'll be socializing with each other. They're, they play with them in different ways. Okay? And you may say, oh, there you go again, just stereotyping. That's because our mindset in this world today is conditioned to be antagonistic about a differentiation between boys and girls. Now, final, final comment on, in regard to this point. What happens when a girl or a woman takes on manly mannerisms or a boy or a man takes on womanly mannerisms? You see, because if the premise that God is the one who is, is the, the premise is that God is the one who designed us and commanded us not to gender blend, then there is such a thing as manly mannerisms, and there is such a thing as womanly mannerisms, not made up, not environmentally trained into them, but, but for real that are part of the fact that they are different. 
And when a, back to the question, when a man takes on womanly mannerisms, what happens to the mind? What happens to the relationships with those around? Now, this is a topic, and vice versa. And this is a topic that really opens a new field of discussion for another time, but, but it's an important one. Okay, point number five. I'm not moving anywhere quickly enough here. Point number five. According to, the, to God, gender matters in that man is susceptible to lustfulness in a way different from a woman. This is a gender issue based upon the way our minds, our brains, our makeup works. Proverbs chapter 5. This is why in Proverbs chapter 5, for example, Proverbs chapter 5, we read, Verse 15, drink water from your own cistern, he says, verse 15, and running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be only your own and not for strangers with you. Let your fountains be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. Now, you can tell that he's talking to men here by what comes next. And as a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breasts satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman and not and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? Now, if you notice in the Proverbs that we find the topic is, in terms of lustfulness, is addressed towards men. And, and we don't find it reversed as if in women's lustfulness for man and a man's shoulders or whatever it might be, you know, is, is, is condemned. And no, because the way a man's mind works in terms of, let's say, sexuality and appearance of a woman is different than the way a woman's mind works. Now, I know I don't have to say that, but I do because I'm trying to build the case that, you know what, God designed that. It's not something that is a biological issue that we just work around. No, it is, it is a fact of how we function that God addresses in this whole issue of the fact that God designed us and gender matters to God. So God gives, he speaks to this because this is a gender issue. And we read in Matthew chapter 5, for example, in verse 28, I say to you that whoever looks at a man to lust after him is... Well, that's not what it says, is it? Because that's not the way it works. Okay, does can a man lust after a woman? Okay, you're going to try to argue that, but fine. Okay, a man can lust after a... I mean, a woman can lust after a man... Okay, I'll, 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 I'll let that go maybe in some time, space, or, but it's not the same, and you know it as well as I do. That's why pornography, that's why women in skimpy outfits sell Ford F-150s, or whatever you want. In other words, it's, it's reality, isn't it? And God addresses it as such. Matthew 5:28. I say to you that whoever looks that a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So number five, according to God, gender matters in that man is susceptible to lustfulness in a way that is different from a woman. That's a, we'll leave that at that. Number six, number six, gender matters in that according to God, man is to love and cherish his wife and treat her with dignity and respect. In other words, there are specific instructions for men to love and cherish his his wife. First Peter chapter three, 
First Peter chapter 3, we read some instructions that are gender-based. First Peter chapter 3. Husbands, verse 7, likewise dwell with them, that is your wives, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, if there is no distinct difference in gender, then these scriptures are meaningless. And if we don't just if we don't acknowledge gender differences, whether if we acknowledge them, we don't see them through the mind of God, then they're of no consequence. They're just as a matter of study. But according to God, when we read this verse, for example, it's a man's responsibility to approach his wife as precious, as valuable, as honorable, with care. That's what we read here. And, and, it, and the direction is to the husband, and the wife is not addressed here. Apparently, because our minds and the way we work and the way we think are different so that this has to be emphasized with men. We read in Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, and verse 19. I'll just read the, the passage and I'm going to keep moving forward. Husbands, he said, he writes, love your wives. Don't be bitter toward them. Don't get casual toward them. Don't, don't treat them as, as if they're unimportant. But love them. Put together what, with what we read in 1 Peter chapter 3, treat them with care as precious and valuable to you. It's a gender issue. Number seven. Number seven. Gender matters to God in that man is to provide food, clothing, and other necessities for his wife. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8. Breaking into the whole passage here, but want to highlight verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his, so apparently this is directed towards the man. So therefore, if it's directed toward the man, it is a gender issue. Agreed? Because it's directed toward the man. Gender. His. Him. So therefore, it says, if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith. This is not only a gender issue, it's a doctrinal issue. It says he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. You know, something interesting in, in Ruth, which is a fascinating study in masculinity and femininity. In Ruth, chapter 1, and, and I'll cite the verse, if you want to jot it down in verse 9, we read a, a, a blessing that is given. And it goes like this. It says, may the Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you her now this is the daughters, as Ruth is one of the uh, now the daughters-in-laws who is going to go on her journey. And this is these are the words that were were said to her by Naomi, and and continuing again that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. In other words, there's an expectation of a blessing of being able to be within his house because he's taking responsibility. He is taking a lead. He is he's going to nurture her and care for her because that's what God intended. That's what matters to God. And when you read the rest of the book of of Ruth, I'm just referring back to it now, but it's a story of her courage, of her work ethic, of her modesty, of her humility, of her generosity, of her wisdom, 
her character. But, but it's also the story of how Boaz was an example of a complementary counterpart to her character, her sterling character, able and willing to be the man described here in First, in First Timothy 5. Question for you. What happens when a man takes on the role of a wife, as defined in the Bible, and the wife takes on the role of a husband? What happens to the husband-wife relationship? What happens to the man's ability to lead his wife when she's taking the role that is defined by God for the husband and vice versa? What happens in the eyes of the children? What happens in the training of the children? What happens to the children when their father acts like a mother and their mother acts like a father? Number eight. Number eight. Gender matters in that women reflect honor and godliness by attiring and adorning themselves with modesty and graciousness. First Timothy chapter two. We're still here. First Timothy chapter two and verse nine. Paul writes to Timothy, in like manner also, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women, professing godliness with good works. Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 16, we read that a gracious woman attains honor. So we read, we read characteristics that are gender-related in regard to women. Note that, that God did not give specific instructions to men necessarily uh, uh, with, in terms of this issue, but he, we do find in a number of places, I've just cited very briefly a, a couple, we find that, again, I'll, I'll, I'll reiterate the point, that gender matters and that women reflect honor and godliness by attiring and adorning themselves with modesty and graciousness. You know, in all the men as leader issues, uh, it appears that this is something that's problematic and, and needed, and needed in instructions. Verse 9, or, or number 9, point number 9, point number 9 then. Gender matters in our physicality. And I won't take a lot of time on this, but... Proverbs chapter 20, Proverbs chapter 20, and verse 29. A simple statement of fact that is, that is recorded here. The glory of young men is their strength, and the splendor of old men is their, their gray head. Okay, so God made men and women's bodies different, differently on purpose. And if you look at what the norm is in our, in our society, in our entertainment anyway in particular, we find that our entertainment applauds um, strong women beating up men. Sometimes it applauds women beating up other women. If you look at and do some, some, uh, some glancing and some surveying of most popular movies, that's what is popular today. In other words, the, what we find is not the natural design of God that men revel and glory and strength, but no, what, we're, what is being pushed is for women to also glory and, and strength and combativeness and aggressiveness. And again, this is one that is, was, is really fascinating to do uh, much more discussion and talk on an outlining what that's all about. 
But I'll leave it at that point for today. In other words, you know, if we understand, if we look at, at physicality, the, the difference between men and women and masculinity and femininity typically is one of design, not to be blurred, but the, the beauty of a, of a woman, the beauty, modesty, grace of a woman, and the strength and willingness to step forward and take a leadership role of a man, that's something that's designed by, by God. Number 10, last one, number 10. Gender matters in terms of how God views the model of true womanliness. If we look at what God has to say on this issue, what God has recorded for us on this issue, then we find places like this. Proverbs chapter 14. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 1. The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish pulls it down with her hands. So it talks about a wise woman building her house, being involved in, in building up of her house, home, her, her ability to extend her, herself within the, her circle around her. Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. You know I was going to go here because it's what the Bible says. Titus chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, verse 1, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. So this is a matter of doctrine. God is uh, concerned about gender matters. Titus chapter 2, verse 1, But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love and patience. And the older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. So the top priority, according to God in terms of gender, is for her to build her house and home in support of her husband. You know, Proverbs chapter 31, if we read Proverbs 31, we read of all the competency and all her glory that's involved here in the endeavor of building her family, strengthening her family. All the activities that she does, as you read in Proverbs 31, are related to the strengthening of her family and her home and the support of her husband. Now, I know that for some there's resistance in terms of, of these concepts and fundamental principles. Things like, what if I don't have a family? Or, that's old-fashioned, that's 1950-ish. And by the way, just remember, the Bible wasn't written in the 1950s, and God is not a God of the 1950s either. Or, some might say, well, this is patronizing to women. The problem is this. The question that we should ask when it comes to God's Word is, how can I apply this to today? But instead, so often, whether it's the Sabbath or whether it's tithing or whether it's the Holy Days, etc., it's how, how, how much do I have to do? Oh, you can't do that today. That's not the way it's done today. Or that's not possible today. You know, we're not to be okay with the norms of society. Our challenge is applying God's Word to our life in a society that wars against the mind of God. And our society does war against the mind of God. 
in the issue of, of gender and what gender is all about. Our society absolutely wars. Think about Satan the devil. What is, and I don't know Satan's mind, but what does Satan think about gender? Well, from the, all I can say is from the early pages of the Bible, when his desire was to destroy the family, that's what he was, that's what he was about. He must not be very positive toward it. But, but our society follows his lead and wars against it. So are we wrestling not with what do we have to do, but are we wrestling instead with God, how do I apply this instead of choosing to ignore it or turn a blind eye to something that I, I'm just not interested in? It doesn't fit with my opinion of what gender is all about. Now, I'm just going to take a couple minutes and ask this question. Why does gender not matter? So in other words, here are just a couple of ways in which gender does not matter. And I'll give you just a couple of examples to get you started on this, on this line of thinking. Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs, gender does not matter in terms of children learning from parents. So, for example, we read Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 8. My son, hear the instruction of your father, and do not forsake the law of your mother, for they will be graceful, a graceful ornament on your head and chains about your neck. In other, words, in other words, both parents are supposed to teach and train children. In that regard, both genders need to be certainly involved, and, and, and it's both parties' responsibility. Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 20. My son, keep your father's command. Do not forsake the law of your mother again. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, just list a few on this, on this score. You fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Some think, well, training children is just for the mothers, not the dad's business. No, not at all. Both are involved. It's important to both. So it's not a matter of, well, that's one gender or another taking responsibility. Now, um, father is admonish here specifically to to take a take take part in and take a responsibility in training of, of children certainly but mothers are as well and colossians chapter 3 verse 21 again fathers don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged instead should be training them okay so that's one way that i'll say gender is both genders are involved we don't find it something that's um from a, a largely different Here's another one. Men and women are equally accountable for sinning against God. And I'm going to go quickly through a couple of these because uh, I want to I want to uh, conclude here in time. So, for example, Numbers chapter five and verse six, we read, speak to the children of Israel when a man or woman commits any sin that men commit an unfaithfulness against the Lord. And that person is guilty. And it goes on from there. Now, you know where I'm going there. Men and women both are held accountable for, for sinfulness. We read uh, this both in the Old Testament and the New. Deuteronomy uh, 29 and verse 18 any among you, man or woman or family or tribe, whose heart turns away from the Lord of Lord your God, and it goes on from there. Here's another general point about uh, that applies to both men and women. Men and women are both required to build and reflect godly character, character like courage, wisdom, the fruit of God's spirit. 
You know, godly character attributes are important for both men and women. Some You might say, oh yeah, men are supposed to be courageous and women are supposed to be gentle. That's not biblical. That's not biblical at all. Because we find that courage is required and expected of both men and women. It's just, it comes out differently depending upon the other attributes that we talked about. Was Ruth not courageous? I talked about her before. Was Christ not gentle? So, we make sure that we don't mix character attributes with gender uh, requirements of God. Because that wouldn't be correct either. Men and women both have the same opportunity to be spirit beings in God's family. Of course, Galatians chapter 3, we read that there is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free, neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. So we understand, spiritually speaking... We don't have a different gender role in God's family, spiritually speaking, ultimately. And and uh, we could certainly talk more about that. Now, so let's talk about the application of this here just for a couple of minutes. Many features in our culture, our language, our entertainment, our workplace, our community functioning, are so normal to us that we have a hard time imagining anything different. But we are at the end point of a 100-year program, five generations of waves of feminism that have brought us to this point. This does bring us up to the inevitable question. How well are we applying these principles in our lives then? How well are we applying God's priorities on on gender that we've read through here and more? How are we applying them in in our lives? You know, when I think about the issues that I've reviewed, the different keys the different priorities according to God in terms of gender, what's required of a man? When I think about these, I don't feel very confident in my performance. And I don't know about you men, but I can see that, you know, I've had room for a lot of improvement, and and now that I have to practice without my wife, I, I realize that, you know, I'm like many of you who don't have a wife. We have to practice in our relationships with women. But we're not off the hook. We don't get a pass. We don't get an opt-out. Now, in my case, that my wife is gone. From acting like, from fulfilling the, the standards that are set for men in whatever way we can. And those of you who have a wife, who are married, you have a responsibility to the best of your ability to fulfill those gender uh, uh, guidelines that are given by God, that I've gone through. And it's for you ladies, married or or unmarried, you have to consider how you fulfill your part of this dance, this male-female dynamic. It's not easy, and it could be a moving target, because as you go through different stages in life and different situations, you know, it's different. But it doesn't mean we can ignore God's instructions, We can't ignore God's template. We can't ignore God's priorities. And if you think it can't be done, you think we can't follow this template, then look around you, because there are those who are. And instead of asking those and talking to those who aren't to bolster ignoring them, talk with some of them who are, because there are women who are following those and are examples. Ask them. Ask them how to do it. 
You know, imagine a world without maleness or femaleness. You know, perhaps God could have designed us to reproduce by maybe taking off our little finger and planting it in a pot, maybe adding some, you know, rooting hormone or something, a little bit of water, a little bit of sunlight, and voila, it begins to grow. Before long, it begins to look like us, and man, and our little finger is plucked from the pot, and there we go. God could have done it that way. What a boring world it would be, though, right? I mean, but these differences that God made to, to a man, the beauty and mysteriousness of a woman. Intriguing, confusing, but so attractive. And, and for a woman, well, I'm not sure what a woman finds attractive in a man, actually, so I'm not sure what it is for women, to tell you the truth. But I know what it is for a man. Imagine all the love songs that would never have been written. Imagine the fun and the challenges and the trials that never would have been enjoyed and, and navigated by hundreds and thousands and thousands and thousands of husbands and wives together. Imagine all the golden anniversaries that never would have been celebrated if not for God creating man and woman as different, as designed. Proverbs chapter 30 Proverbs 30, verse 18. There are three things which are too wonderful for me, yet four which I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the air, the way of a serpent on a rock, and the way of a ship in the midst of the sea, and the way of a man with a maid or with a virgin. The magic of a wife being able to finish her husband's sentences. I know my wife could finish my sentences. She would know what I was going to say even when I didn't yet. I was still going, and she she would finish. I said, that's right. But I didn't know I was going to say it. She knew it before I did. You know, how does that happen? But because you grow to know each other so well as a husband and a wife, different, complementary in a wonderful way. For a man, the willingness to want so desperately to, to make his wife happy, that's because God built that into us. You know, in Ephesians chapter 5, we read that gender means a great deal to God because ultimately it represents his working with us as we find laid out here. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. He immediately ties it in to our relationship with God. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he's the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be their own husbands in everything. And husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Husbands. Verse 28, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. Are you telling me that God's not concerned about gender? I would say you are so wrong. Because gender helps us to understand the nature of God and God's love for us. And his willingness, Jesus Christ's willingness to lay down his life for us. That's what a man does if a man is a man. And a woman, if she is a woman, fulfilling the gender roles and the gender mindset that God gave her, 
has the mindset to love her husband and to support him, not to want to undermine him or in some way uh, uh, wrestle back and forth for who's the boss or what, what have you, any of that other stuff, but no, but to love him and support him and want to encourage him. We see here that this relationship helps us to understand God's relationship with us and Christ. You know, I, I just want to end with this. How can you apply what I've been talking about in, a, in, a, in an active way today, I, I, I think would be a final question to ask. Well, at some point today, as you leave, you will approach a door. And it could be an outer door of the building. Um, it could be the door into the auditorium. It could be a car door. If you are a man and you are approaching said door at approximately the same rate and velocity as a woman, then what I would ask you to do to have an action step towards what I've talked about today is to apply 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17. And we read it all already, but I'll read it again. Likewise, you husbands... Dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker or more precious or more valuable and loved than cherished vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers not be hindered. Whether you're married or not, I would ask you, as you approach that said door, at the same time as a woman, play the man and exert that little bit of extra effort, showing deference, showing respect, and a desire to make her life just a tiny bit easier and open the door for the woman. Now, if you are not exceptionally strong and you have to struggle with the door a bit, that's okay. She'll wait. But there's another part to this. There's another part to this and to this whole system that God has given to us. You see, according to God, a woman also has to make a choice, just like the man. In this case, she has to allow the man to offer her this courtesy. This is a really big deal, folks. You see, because a man has to allow his wife to lead in the affairs that God assigns her within the role of home builder. He has to applaud her effort. He has to love her for her effort and not criticize or push her aside or show how you can do it better. And likewise, when a man is trying to lead and trying to love, a woman has to do her best to acknowledge his effort, to understand that and cooperate and encourage him and appreciate him, ultimately to her own benefit, because she'll train him to be that kind of a man. Let him open the door, even if you're a better door opener. Now, I have no argument with the fact that a lot of women could open the door better than a lot of men. I mean, you as a woman may have a door-opening style that shows super Avenger woman strength that matches any guy around. So I, I know you may have the panache in opening the door as well as the strength, but that's not really the point, is it? It's not really the point. Men, do you want to dance with a woman who fights you for the lead? Women, do you want to dance with a man who refuses to take the lead? Or men and women, do you want to dance with no rules at all as to who takes the lead and who follows? I guess that's what freestyle dancing is about. But boy, it's a whole lot more enjoyable 
to hold the one you're dancing with in your arms, to move together in time, close but respectful, in harmony, as one, together. Men, open the door. Women, let him open the door. Early in the sermon, I said there would be a a test. I don't want to disappoint you. I gave the test to the kids to begin with, and they did very well. So let's try it now for everyone. Question number one. You thought I was kidding, didn't you? Question number one. Okay. I have two minutes left. So question number one. Number one. Are men and women different? This is a yes or no question. Okay. Oh, you don't just write on your paper, and you can send them into my email if you if you wish. Okay. Number two. Who was the author? And what was the name of the book that I mentioned as I began the sermon? Now, I specifically, because Mr. Ames has told me in the past, you need to repeat the author and title of a book when you give it in a sermon. So I did it four times, okay? So who was the author and what was the name of the book that I gave at the beginning of the sermon? And, and, and question number three, this is the test, why does gender matter to God? When you finish those three questions, you may leave the classroom. Well, actually, that last one may take a little more work, so I'll tell you what, we'll just make that as a take-home test, okay? And you can turn that in in the future. Have a good Sabbath.